Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the rhythm beating in our heart every day? Amazing love. My God died for me. What a powerful thing for us to enter into this message with. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to say, I'm sorry? Maybe y'all don't struggle with it quite like the rest of us do. <laughs> Seven letters, easy to articulate, but so hard to let those words roll off your tongue. I'm sorry. I don't know why it's so hard. I found it in my own relationship with my wife. Rachel and I, I'm sure this is hard to imagine, but we've disagreed a couple of times in our marriage, and um, there have been moments when those disagreements have concluded with just silence. I don't know if you've experienced this before. And uh, we go the rest of the evening with silence, and then there I am laying in bed thinking, Wes, just say you're sorry. That's all you have to do. Just say it. It's really, I'm sorry, Rachel. Just say it out loud. And it's so, I do have to admit, I do most of the time eventually say it. It just struggles to come off the tongue. I see it in my own children as well. You know, one of them will hurt one of their brothers or sister, and I'll say, just, you need to apologize. But I, I didn't mean to. I know you didn't mean to. But just say, I'm sorry. Well, they did such and such. Just say, I'm sorry. And then I'll hurt one of them. And it's hard for me to say to them, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'll say, if you wouldn't have done such and such, then I just, I'm sorry. Why is it so hard to say, I'm sorry? And maybe it's easy for you, but I thought for the rest of us, we ought to just rehearse this. We ought to at least get one lesson today. So on the count of three, I just want you to practice it. Just to practice, I'm sorry. And, I, and if you don't hear the person next to you do that, then just raise your hand, okay? So on the count of three, here we go. I'm sorry on three. One, two, three. I'm sorry. See, it's not that hard. Well, today we're talking about confession, which is really us saying, I'm sorry to God. And um, I'm hopeful, though, that today's message is entitled, God Who Forgives. But I'm hopeful you're already aware that God forgives. I hope that's been driven into your heart. And so what I really hope we grab hold of this morning is accepting the reality of forgiveness. This reality of forgiveness that's rooted in the ancient and important practice of confession. Uh, this summer we're studying through the song book of the Bible, through the book of Psalms, a summer in the Psalms. And my desire has been that we will each find refreshment as we read the poetic words of the Psalms. But also that there might be challenge to us as we continue to grow in our spiritual walk. And I think Psalm 51 has the ability to do that more than some of the others. The Holy Spirit, if he wants to, will just, if he applies this to your heart, it may feel like somebody's stepping on your toes. David is the author of this psalm, and it's categorized as one of the penitential psalms. There's seven of these. The penitential psalms um, are um, psalms where the writer is dominated with a sense of guilt. Guilt on his soul. And so they're very personal. They focus on confession and repentance, and most degree, Psalm 51 is the absolute pinnacle of the penitential psalms. Psalm 51 is born out of David's terrible dive into willful rebellion against God. 1 Samuel 11 and 12 recount the story of how David, king of Israel, sees something. Actually, I guess it was someone that he wanted. He's king, and so he gets what he wants. So he takes Bathsheba. He gets her. She gets pregnant. And now he realizes he has to cover his sins. And so he recall, calls home his, her um, soldier husband who is on the front lines of battle so that he can cover up for these sins. Well, turns out her husband Uriah is too honorable of a man while they're at war to do such a thing. And so he doesn't do that. And now David is kind of presented with an, uh, another wicked thing, which is 
He has Uriah killed so that he can cover for his own sins. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. They have a child together. God does not miss one moment of this dramatically sinful narrative playing out among his chosen leader of his chosen people. And so he sends his prophet Nathan to David. Nathan goes to David. He tells the story of this poor man in the kingdom who has a lamb uh, that he treats as a pet. But a rich landowner comes to the poor man, takes this lamb because he has guests coming. He has it slaughtered so he can prepare a meal. And he's telling this to David as if this is happening right now in the kingdom. David is incensed. Who is this wicked, rich landowner that took from this unjustly from this poor man? And he says, Nathan, who did this? Who did this? And Nathan says, you are the man. It is one of the most radically candid moments in all of the scriptures. When Nathan confronts David, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. And David realizes what Nathan is speaking of in this moment. He recognized that God has bore witness to his heinous sins. He confesses his sins to Nathan. He confesses his sins to God. And Nathan says, well, God's not going to take your life for it. But you will experience consequences for your sin. And so it's from this very dramatic low in David's life that we get one of the most incredible psalms in all of the scriptures. And so turning your Bibles to Psalm 51... And I'm going to read to you this morning, verses 1 through 12. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David, in extreme mental anguish and heart guilt, calls to God in sorrow and repentance, recognizing he has sinned before God. The message that is so clear from this psalm is we sin, God sees. We confess, God forgives. So we need to ask ourselves, what model does David use in Psalm 51 to approach God in confession that we can follow? Well, David's plea of repentance expresses a cry for forgiveness, an appeal for cleansing, and a desire for renewal. So let's look first at verses 1 through 6 at David's cry for forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but the, when I first read this, I, it, what stands out to me is how personal it is. You see all the personal pronouns here. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. And he just continues in that way. So we're kind of eavesdropping on David's personal prayer with God. Now, David's poetic here 
But this psalm is very personal. It comes from a very raw place, a very hard place in his life. And David is known as God's man for the throne. He is the man after God's own heart. He's the chosen one for the throne. Uh, He's a true spiritual giant. But when he goes to God in prayer, he does not appeal to him on the, uh, the circumstances of his own credentials. You know, since I've been so good for you, God, I've done so many great things or because, God, you recognize my heart is for you. He doesn't appeal to God in that way. He asks uh, for grace and then he appeals to God's loving kindness and character. He says, according to the greatness of your loving kindness. He's depending on God's assistance here. It's, you know, the, the, God's assistance for the pitiful, the one who has no option, no opportunity. So this is not some audacious request. It's not like he is assuming upon God or presuming upon God. He doesn't come before God and say, God, I need you to forgive me now. It's a very humble petition. He also does not sidestep what he's done. Personally, I am guilty of going before God and being very general and and just kind of saying, God, forgive me for my sins without really considering what I've done, but not David. David does not do this. Look at verses 1 and 2. He uses about three different words here. He does specifically three different words here to describe a sin. He says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Transgression is another word for rebellion. This is not a pretty word. It's serious. It's the deliberate crossing of the line that God has drawn. So David crosses the line that God has drawn. He transgresses God's law. And then he says... In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Well, iniquity is a word for inward crookedness. It may look good on the outside, but it's rotten to the core on the inside. And so people would say, but David, you've done such great things. Look at all you've done. Look at what you face. But David knew, no, inside it's crooked. Same thing, you look at me and you may think, Wes has got it all together. I'm just telling you, there's a stench within me of sin. And I know this. I know I go before God that way. And so he says, uh, wash me from my iniquity. Then he says, and cleanse me from my sin. That's the word he uses. Sin means missing the mark. It's the archer's term. He aims for the bullseye and he falls short of it. And so when we sin, that's what we do. God says, this is the standard and we fail every time. So he calls it transgressions, iniquity, sin. And he calls what he's done what it actually is. And this cry for forgiveness very specifically becomes confession of sin. He does not say, well, God, I know you're going to forgive me, and so thank you for your forgiveness, or I know I don't have anything to be concerned about. He doesn't say, you know, I know I can sin now and be cleansed later. That's not what he does. Just like there were three descriptors of his wrongdoing, transgressions, iniquity, and sin, David offers a triplet of statements here to clarify his confession. Verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He is saying, I am aware of my sin. It is not lost on me. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, this is where David's been confronted. I mean, and um, it says there, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's very specific. I've done the wrong thing here. In fact, he makes it seem as if, as if that's all he can see. My sin is ever before me. I wake up, it's there. I go to bed, it's there. And in verse 4, He says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So he said, I'm aware of my sin. And now here he says, I know that my sin is against you. 
God. He sinned against God. It's the example of the creator, the created thumbing its nose at the creator. I'll do what I want to do, God. He says, that's, I know that's what I've done. Now, clearly, David has sinned against Bathsheba. He did a terrible thing there. Some would call it rape because he's exerted control, manipulation. So he sinned against her. He sinned against Uriah, had his life taken. Sinned against his kingdom because he abused his power, his authority. But he recognizes that sin has context within God's law. So if I've sinned against you, ultimately, I've sinned against God. And so he says, I've sinned against God. That's what he recognizes here. David sinned against God. He doesn't overplay it. He also doesn't uh, uh, underplay it here. We're prone to do both. You know, treat sin as if it's nothing or treat sin like it's everything. He just confesses. To confess means to agree with God. And that's precisely what David does. I have done what is evil in your sight. So first, I'm aware of my sin. Secondly, I know that my sin is against God. And then finally, he admits here, I have a thoroughly evil nature. He explains the doctrine of original sin. In verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is not David skirting responsibility here. This is not him casting blame. We hear this a lot, right? Well, it's because of my circumstances, the family I grew up in, the opportunities I didn't have. And that kind of gives me reason to sin. David's not doing that here. He's no, he knows I'm rotten to the core. He's admitted that this act was not some isolated event. It was not just a certain set of circumstances that kind of led to it. He says the root of this sin is in my heart. It's not in my eyes. It's not in my hands. It's in my heart, God. Well, true confession is agreeing with God and resisting the urge to justify or to downplay our unrighteous acts. We don't confess because God needs it. It's not like he's up there saying, well, I need you to tell me that I was right and you're wrong. It's not that. It's not God just being so greedy with mercy that our confession is a magic spell to get him to loose his fingers from it. It's not an accounting procedure where God's saying, you've sinned here, but you've confessed, and you haven't done this one yet. That's not what confession is. Confession is us just saying to God, yes, you're right, God. What I've done, what I've said, what I've thought is unbecoming a child of God. And I would say that confession is a key to liberating oneself from guilt. There are plenty of people that are on a guilt trip today. Well, confession loosens the chains there. It also, the next time the temptation comes, when we confess, the temptation hopefully is not as alluring because we've called it what it is, sin, rebellion, wrongdoing. So, there, there have been many ways that people have mastered the discipline of confession. So I'm just going to challenge you to be honest this morning with God and yourself about sin in your life. And what are some habits you can do so you can practice the discipline to grow in your relationship with the Lord through confession? Well, I would tell you one of those habits people use is through the prayer of examine. It's an ancient practice. It's often done at the end of the day or as a part of kind of prayers at the end of the day. So you take time to thank God for the day and the gifts you've received and then you just re rehearse through the activities of your day with the Lord asking him to point it out to you and say God I, I, just, just show me where I strayed from what you would want me to do and you analyze it you know is there somewhere where I did something I shouldn't have done or I didn't say something when I should have God I see this right here I'm so sorry for that or this thought 
that came about because of this, and then I carried it through when I should not have done that. God, I confess that to you. And so they practice this at the end of the day. And then we confess and we allow grace to wash over us. We need God's grace to usher through that practice so we didn't go, don't get caught up in guilt. Another practice may just be to go through categories of sin, maybe through the Ten Commandments. Where have I failed in this area? And God, I'm sorry for this. Bill W. calls the fourth step in the 12 steps a fearless and ruthless moral inventory. When's the last time you did that for yourself? Rather than just saying, I'm not going to think about that, because once I, I know what happens to me, you go there fearlessly, ruthlessly, and you analyze yourself. I know you analyze others, but what about yourself, where you see your own shortcomings? So David cries to God for forgiveness and clearly confesses his sin. Next, he seeks cleansing. One thing about sin is it wreaks havoc. It's impossible to live in this world and not notice that. Look around you at what sin does to our world, does to relationships, does to power, does to pleasure. It's a terrible thing. What damaged David in many ways, it'll continue to. It fractures his family. It leads to civil war within the nation. But he refers to the consequences of sin in verses 7 through 9 here. He felt dirty. He says, purify me, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. He, he had this sense or this feeling of I'm filthy before the Lord. He's experienced the loss of joy and gladness. He says his ears have been dulled to it because he says, make me to hear joy and gladness because that had left his life. And he says, God, let me hear that again. And then he speaks of bones being broken. I don't think he's speaking of physical bones there, but I think a broken life. And what the broken life, God, let it rejoice. Let the cir circumstances that have led me to this point lead to joy in some way. So there's pain and hurt there. He also speaks of stain and tells God to hide from my sins. Well, I think sin does the same thing to you and me. It has consequences. Many people have been quoted as saying, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I think that's right. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. That was definitely true for David. Just one little thing. So in that same model as before, David makes three requests of God in appealing for cleansing. In verse 7, he says, purify me. To purify means to clean or to purge. It actually carries this idea of to descend. God, I've sinned, now you descend me. You pull it out of me. You cleanse it from me. Remove it. And then in verse 7, he says, wash me. David recognizes he cannot scrub his soul enough to clean himself up. Many people say, well, I need to clean myself up before I go before the Lord. David knew, I can't do that. God, so I'm going to need you to wash me because I don't know what to do. He's helpless on his own to deal with the stain of sin. He knew there was a scarlet letter on his soul, and he said, God, would you remove it, wash it, scrub it out. And then in verse 9, he says, and blot out all my iniquities. It's as if David sees that God is watching his life and that there is some sort of uh, tablet there or a ledger where there's a record of the sins against him. And so he says, God, would you blot those sins out that are on the ledger against me? Because I can't fill that booklet up with enough good things to get you to ignore that. So he wanted it off his record. Well, our first need in confession is pardon from sin. We confess so we can receive 
pardon. James Montgomery Boyce, he illustrates this, this imagery here by um, explaining that ancient uh, Bible manuscripts, there were certain parts of them, pieces of papyrus that would have text written on them that for whatever reason weren't needed anymore. But papyrus was not cheap, so they wouldn't just wad it up and toss it, wouldn't recycle it, wouldn't shred it. They would take it and say, we need to put something new on this. And so somebody would rub out the ink, is what James Montgomery Boyce explains. Rub out the ink until it's mostly gone, then turn it sideways and print over the top of it so it could be used again. That's what David wanted. And it's what we all desperately need. The books of our lives have been written with many sins, and these stand as a terrible indictment against us that will be read out on the last day, on the day of judgment, unless something is done. But God can do and will do something if we ask him. God will blot it out. He'll rub it out. Like David, we must recognize that only God can pardon sin. It's our only source for that. People imagine all kinds of ways to come clean before the Lord. They think uh, baptism, I'll get baptized and I can get my sins washed away. Some people look back and they say, I was baptized. And so now I've been forgiven of those sins. But we believe baptism is simply a sign of what's happening on the inside. There's no magic in the water. It doesn't wash away my sins, but it declares to the world what's happened on the inside. Some people think, well, I'll do a certain amount of good things that'll weigh out against the bad. And God will say, well, you've done enough good things. We'll, we'll, we'll clean these things off. That doesn't work. Or maybe they say, well, if I can repay those for whom I've harmed in my sin, if I can just get it right with them, then that'll make me right with God. But that falls short. Only God can cleanse your soul. So without a pardon that comes from the King of Kings, we're hopeless to stand before him with confidence. So we sin, and like David, we cry to God for forgiveness. We make an appeal for cleansing and now a renewal for our hearts. David says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Only you, God, can make my heart clean. And David uses a specific Hebrew word here. It's the word bara. So he's, that's the word for create. Bara in me a clean heart. It's the same word that's used in the creation account, where God makes something from nothing. So he doesn't say, God, you fix it. Or you clean it up. He says, God, I need a new heart. Mine is foul. I need a new heart. So David's heart was stained. He didn't need a change. He didn't need mending. He needed something brand new. God, give me a new heart. In verse 11, David writes, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Have you ever felt like that before? Your actions have created such a distance between God and you that you think he's gone, that he's abandoned you, that he's left you. Well, that's how David felt. God, God, don't leave me here. Don't take your spirit from me. But you know, as a believer, we're not in jeopardy of losing our salvation. Romans makes it clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That means your sin cannot unsave you. That's not what happens. In fact, we don't have to be anxious about losing the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we can have this feeling of being out of fellowship with God, of out of step with the Holy Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit through righteousness. We allow other things to push God out of our lives, and we think He's abandoned us. But it was our willful rebellion that created the distance. So David makes a third statement to the Lord here in regards to his renewal. In verse 12, 
He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David wants renewal. He wants to experience the joy of salvation again. That was gone. But I've been saved, so God, would you just, I want to experience that joy again. Sin can remove every good thing for our, from our lives. In Psalm 51, David asks a lot of the Lord. You know why? Because sin wreaks a lot of havoc. And he needs a lot from the Lord to cover the damage. So it's no simple, uh, no simple matter here. His salvation's lacking joy. He wants a new heart that restores that joy, sustains obedience to his soul. And the second need in confession is purity of heart. So first we need pardon from sin. Second, we need purity of heart. There's a difference between not doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. To be right before God, we need the sin, the wrong removed. But we also need a clean heart where we've done the pure thing. Have you ever felt dirty before? Doesn't matter how much you wash your hands, how much soap, bleach, Purell, whatever it takes, you can't clean it out. You just have a feeling of, I will never feel clean again. And it might be because of something dirty that got on you. Well, one of the motifs of Shakespeare's Macbeth is how tough it is to wash, to scrub, to soak out nasty stains, and in that case, blood stains. Macbeth said, even if I had all the ocean to wash, I couldn't get the blood of Duncan off my hands. Lady Macbeth knew that the blood had dyed her conscience. Where do we find a clean heart? Only in God. If you're trying to clean your heart, there is no physical act you can do to purify yourself. It's only found in the spiritual act of recreation that comes only by the Lord. So to receive forgiveness means pardon from sin. It means purity of heart. Confession of sin is, is personal. But our relationship with God is never entirely private. I, I hope you catch that. We can have a personal relationship with the Lord, but it's not always just private. Even David in his sin here is exposed to us. And he says, God, if you, for, if you forgive me, then I will go on to, he says in verse 13, I'll teach transgressors your ways. Well, David finds the forgiveness he seeks, and many think that in Psalm, 30, in Psalm 32, this is evidence of David getting the forgiveness and then going on to do what he says. He says in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So he got the forgiveness, but the question must be, how is that possible? Well, it's through sacrifices. But David saw that the sacrifices at the temple would not be sufficient. See verse 16 of Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. It's not enough, God. He realized personal sacrifices were not enough to find forgiveness. He actually says in verse 17 what might be needed. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So it comes from contrition of our own hearts. But I want to point out to you what I think is the key here. It's in verse 7, if you want to look back there. First four words, purify me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that's used in the Exodus account whenever Moses says you're to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that when the death angel comes in, it will pass over. And they apply that blood with hyssop. It's also used in the Levitical law. If somebody has a disease of their skin and they're clean, they're supposed to come before the priest. He takes hyssop and splatters blood and says, you've been forgiven here. The writer of Hebrews actually explains it as well. He talks about the sprinkling, both the book itself and the people with this blood. So the hyssop is used to sprinkle blood for consecration, for cleansing. 
And then we get this powerful word at the very end, Hebrews 9, verse 22. I'll just read it to you at the very end. It says, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. David understood that forgiveness required blood. And that blood does not come from pigeons. It does not come from uh, the lambs. It does not come from bulls. It comes from Jesus. Have you received forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus? It's simply through receiving him and believing him and calling on his name. And you can receive that forgiveness today. If you are a believer, do you practice confession as a regular habit? Do you have a broken and contrite heart before the Lord? When we practice confession well, two things happen. Guilt goes away. And also we're less likely to sin the next time we're tempted. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful message of Psalm 51. And it's not about David alone, it's about us. God, thank you that when we come before you in confession, we also receive forgiveness that's made available to us only through faith in Jesus. And so I pray for each person here that we would respond to that. We would respond to the grace that you offer, but also to the power of walking in the Spirit through the practice of confession. As we come to this invitation, Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts and our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's speaking to your heart this morning. I hope you'd respond. Some of you, it may be, I need to say yes to Jesus and receive forgiveness. Some of it may be, you know what? I have the grace, but I'm not walking in it through the practice of confession. And so today, maybe you need to make a commitment to that. Others may want to join the church, follow in believers' baptism. If God's speaking to your heart, you respond. I'm going to ask you to stand. As our choir sings, I'll be down front waiting on you. So glad to see all of you here. Hope that you are having an incredible summer. We just had a team return from Connecticut serving with our Builders for Christ team. From what I understand, it was an incredible thing. And uh, actually found out I have a friend who's up there who's a member of that church. And so it's a cool thing that they were helping to build the sanctuary. So you uh, also this week, or just left out this weekend, is a team going to Salt Lake City on mission. So I want to encourage you to be praying for that team as they're there and now as they begin to minister this week. We also have happening this week our Vacation Bible School. And so you be praying for that. It's going to be an incredible opportunity. Many children and students in the VBX. I know there will be internationals here as well. 
for VBS, you'd be praying for that. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to reach our community and to minister to those families, even families within our church. One note on that is there will not be Wednesday night dinner served here. There will be a prayer meeting, but we just won't have, and I think that's happening in Boyce Chapel. If I'm wrong, Richard will fill you in later. But uh, the, uh, there's no dinner in Ellis Hall on Wednesday night. Um, and you, you can't shoot the messenger, but I'm, just, I'm the one who has to tell you that if you haven't noticed and you parked in the parking garage, from what I, what I understand, one of those gates, the exit gate is closed and will not open. And they have done everything. I think they even sprinkled some blood and water. and all. It did not raise. And so uh, what I've been told to tell you is as you are exiting, it's going to be a little bit interesting. So I say catch up on confession as you're cycling down to the garage. And then by the time you leave, you may have a few more things to confess. And so you just go ahead and do that. But as you come out, they're going to want you to turn left to go up Marion Street towards uh, Washington, okay? So that'll be fun. So y'all enjoy that as uh, we uh, conclude. Also, if you have prayer needs, we have some folks down here, guys in uh, red uh, name tags. They'd love to pray with you, our deacons, and uh, whatever that specific need may be. We also have our deacons meeting uh, tomorrow evening, and so our deacon prayer team actually gathers at 5.30 over in 1420, and we invite those in our church. If you have specific needs and you want some deacons to gather around you and pray for that, then you can show up right over here in 1420 Sumter. If you, if you can't be there tomorrow, there's somebody around here, stand right here, Ben's right here. You bring down your request, hand it to him. He'll make sure they pray for it when they gather tomorrow evening. All right? Well, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray benediction, and we'll conclude. Father God, what a pleasure it is to worship you with the saints of God. We pray now as we leave this place, we'll be ready to serve. In Christ's name. Amen.